0: Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, I welcome Dan Garino, who wrote Comic Shop, the retail mavericks who gave us a new geek culture. Now out in a second edition, Dan wrote a fascinating book about the history and culture of the American comic book shop. It's not just a great history, but also a very engaging story about some of the most important comic shops and what makes them stand out. I think you'll really enjoy the hour or so we chat about comics and much much more please leave us feedback on itunes and please tell your friends about our show we've been growing i appreciate everyone listening to us and i'd love to hear what you think also at jason sachs on the twitters thanks enjoy the show Dan Carino, thanks for joining me on Classic Comics Cavalcade. Um, You wrote a book which is newly revised, Comic Shop, The Retail Mavericks Who Gave Us a New Geek Culture. And um, I think it's just a really interesting book that not just chronicles the history of comic shops in America, but also kind of gives a portrait of one of your favorite local shops. Um, What motivated you to write this?
1: So um, this book came out of just conversations I was having at my local shop. Um, and so I, I moved to Columbus in 2008. I'm originally from Iowa and I had worked as a, as a newspaper reporter in a couple cities before coming to Columbus. But I moved to Columbus in 2008 and I immediately found the laughing ogre, which is uh, a store um, a couple miles North of Ohio state university here in Columbus. And I, um, the the, the, the co founder of that store and the manager of that store, um, he and I would just get to chatting about you know, I covered businesses in my in my job at the newspaper and I was fascinated by comic shops as a business. And I found when I would ask him questions about the business of comic shops, you know, we would just go off on these long tangents and he just you know, he's a he's a he's a a great storyteller. And he would talk about just his own, what he knew about the history of the business and, and uh, retailers who had come before him who he knew and the history of the business in Columbus. And um, it just became clear to me that there was, there was this fascinating business story there, both in the development of the national business, the development of this kind of, the the, the model that is the, the modern comic shop. And then, that kind of a human story all of these these entrepreneurs who are in a very risky business uh, you know a business with a higher degree of difficulty than a lot of other a lot of other businesses um so i got really interested in this and i wanted to turn and read more about it um and there have been some really great things written about it really informative things um one that i got a lot out of was um Michael Dean from the Comics Journal did a did a story. Uh, it must have been I, uh, I think it was during the two thousands um, that was kind of a look at the history of the direct market. This whole network of distributors that serve comic shops and how that allowed comic shops to to, to kind of grow and exist in their modern form. Um, and that was really informative but beyond that and a couple other things there were it's like i basically was wanting a book that didn't exist i was mm-hmm. wanting to read about exist, so that kind of led me down the road of thinking about if i if i wrote this book what would it look like
0: well and i enjoyed that like i mentioned it's both the history of the industry but also kind of tells the story through the microcosm of one specific shop um, so I've, I've uh, written or co-written a series of books for Tomorrow's called the American Compa Chronicles. And as an example, we talk about the uh, 1978 uh, evolution of the direct market and the uh, Chuck Rosansky suit against Marvel. Um, but you go into that with a different level of depth and also talk about how it affected individual stores. Um, why don't you share that story and then uh, talk about how you did some of the research around that?
1: Well, I would say, um, well, I guess first of all, the um, that American comic, uh, that the, the Chronicle series that you're a part of, that is in an invaluable resource because one of the things I found in writing about this is there, there, there just there isn't a lot out there, and um, in terms of multiple sources to fact check and multiple sources where you can kind of look at. Who their sources were, and you can help kind of vet your own sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and your that the book on the 1970s that goes into um, the some of the the, the legal wranglings th- that those were not. You know, I, 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 I'm I, in my book I cite different primary sources, but I I looked at you at your book and to kind of help determine whether or not what I had was correct, you know, and whether, because there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of just disagreement about the basic facts of some of the things that happened. And, um, so, um, and I know also as a, I don't know, as a fellow author, sometimes you, you just wonder is, um, who's reading this, you know, you hear from readers sometimes <laughs> but I just want to tell you as a fellow author, I read that and I liked it. It was a good, it you did a, you did a really, a really good. Good
0: job with that. Um, well, I really appreciate that. You know, it is interesting, like, writing this history because you often will find, like, this front runner syndrome or the idea that people kind of present themselves as the heroes of the narrative. And it could be really hard, especially if you have people kind of doing retrospectives to get an idea of what actually happened at the time. Um, yeah. And will- Chuck,
1: Chuck Rosansky is an interesting example. Like, um, so Chuck. Uh, he is the founder and owner of Mile High Comics in Denver, and um, a, a, a great resource for understanding kind of the history of the business is this series of columns that Chuck did, right, uh, and, and that are available on his website. But I found, and this is with, and I, this is not a knock on Chuck because Chuck is a retailer; he's not a, a not a journalist. Um, but the the there were elements in there where sometimes the dates weren't right. He would say something happened in a certain year, and it actually happened in a different year. And it so his take on a lot of this stuff was really helpful for, for helping to kind of form an outline, you know, and kind of figuring out what the kind of the, the the kind of broad trends were, and also even figuring out what kind of specific events were. But then to actually really nail down when stuff happened and to just fact check. Um, you know, it usually took two or three or four other. Um, but one of the things you're referring to just a minute ago was Chuck was this owner of a rapidly growing business in in Colorado, and he could see that the way that the major comics publishers distributed their their books was not working very well, and and this was in the uh, late seventies. At that point, there was a virtual monopoly where, um, where one company, um, Seagate uh, distributors out of New York, um, they they had the they, they were they were the you could call it exclusive you could call it kind of quasi exclusive but they were um, dominated the market and Chuck looked at that and he said, not only is this kind of illegal you know is this is kind of you know, is a kind of monopolistic, but it also is. Um, it's also bad for business because the trade terms of that Seagate was using are just not very effective. Um, and so he wrote this long letter to to Marvel Comics, and he then got a meeting with Marvel, and it led to. And it was it, it, that was happening at this time when Seagate, the the, the big distributor, the the first distributor of mainstream comics to comic shops, um, was facing a, a, a legal challenge from another distributor. Um, and, and actually, and as I'm describing all this, I realized that I'm like, um, I'm kind of like skipping to like chapter nine in the history of this. So, um, you know, a good foundational element there is how important Seagate was. So Seagate was, um, Seagate, which was not even called Seagate its first couple years. It just was kind of a company with no name. Um, was started in 1973 um, by Phil Seuling, a convention organizer and a high school teacher, or at that point a recent former high school teacher, and uh, his business partner and his significant other at the time, uh, Johnny Levis, and they had the idea that there was this whole network that existed that was quite small at the time, but... Of comic shops that wanted to sell new comics, and the way that they got, got new comics was through the newspaper distribution system, the newspaper and magazine distribution system, a system that was not made for, for comic fans. It Wait. was a system where it was imprecise. You didn't, you couldn't get fixed quantities of the comics you wanted. Sometimes they arrived damaged. It was just, it was inefficient. It was there were just there were a whole bunch of shortcomings. So what Phil and Johnny did was. They set up this business with a a very small number of clients at first where they made deals with the major publishers to ship comics directly from the printers to shops. Um, So a comic shop could order 50 copies of Amazing Spider-Man and they would know within a fairly specific date range when it was going to come, they would have a higher degree of confidence that would be in good condition and they also had a higher discount because they were buying it on a non returnable basis. So through Phil and Johnny's model, um, when you bought comics, you didn't, you didn't give back unsold items like you would with newspapers and magazines. And that was an important part of it because comic shops at that time kept their unsold material to sell as back issues. You don't sell back issues of a newspaper from three weeks ago. Um, and, um, you, you generally don't. Um, and so a lot of what we're, we were talking about just a moment ago about Chuck Rozanski at Mile High Comics and about this lawsuit, um, it, it was basically kind of trying to unwind what Phil Seuling and Johnny Levis had started because when when they started that company, there wasn't much of a direct distribution market to comic shops. They were like kind of creating it from scratch. And but it grew and comic shops were growing and it was becoming this dynamic business with shops popping up in cities all over the place and it became too big for this kind of handshake deals and kind of back of the envelope uh, math and you know it was um, and the kind of the stuff that you that you talk about in your book is you know is that that moment when that initial system that was around the first 5 to 7 years or so kind of collapsed and it was replaced by this kind of chaos, you know, kind of this chaos, of, you know, depending upon how you want to count them, maybe more than 20 distributors. Um, and it, so much of what led to this real boom in comic shops in the 1980s and this real kind of golden age of comic shops. And I guess I use the term golden age and then I cringe because of course, golden age means something in comics. That's uh, not the 1980s, but, um, but yeah, and it's all tied up in this—this this just really crazy back and forth legally, and um, and just in terms of business relationships in the late seventies.
0: There was a uh, sense in the early eighties that the market was just exploding. Um, that was when I was a really a budding comics fan, and um, just the explosion of new companies, new formats, new publish, new uh, creators to me was unparalleled in comics history, and. I think the move from the, the single distributor system to the multiple distributor system, chaotic as it may have been, really helped to transform American comics as we know them today. It, it
1: It's kind of like um, this kind of basic tenet of economics, which is that when you have the dynamism of competition, it makes it so that everybody you either kind of you either step up your game or you go out of business mm-hmm. and the dynamism of competition means that you try to have the best terms to your customers because you want more customers and you want customers to, you know, choose you over others. It also means you want to differentiate between yourself and competitors. So one way of differentiating is you sell products that the other guys don't have. And with this, with this competition among distributors in the early eighties, um, part of it was having more warehouses and being able to quickly ship and being able to be flexible part of it also was having material that others didn't
0: have mm-hmm. whether that be
1: imported material whether that be more kind of underground material or um just stuff that's um it, it and it made it so that yeah it was just this um it was just this kind of dynamism and retailers from that era will say that they would do business with multiple retailers. You know, they would have, like, their main... Or multiple, I'm sorry, multiple distributors. Um, You know, their main distributor might be Capital City out of Wisconsin. Um, And that's where they got their mainstream comics and a bunch of other stuff. But then they would get some imported material from Bud Plant uh, Incorporated, uh, which is a distributor out of California. Or they would get posters and other kind of collectible items from this third distributor. Or they would you know there it wasn't like today where there's this one catalog from the one distributor um the best retailers would um they would get stuff from a bunch of different places and because of that there was there i, I shouldn't say it it wasn't because of that but this competition helped to create um it made it easier for new things to enter the market and for comic fans in that era to discover Japanese comics when maybe they hadn't before, to discover some European comics where they hadn't before, too. Um, and you saw this kind of growth of alternative comics. So you look at, like, titles like Love and Rockets and that found an audience um, at, at, at that time. You know, and it's all yeah in, that, in this early 80s period that was just... It must have been incredible as a, as a retailer and as a reader to be, I mean, it was just, that's just a tad before my time. In, like, 1983, I would have been reading The Legion of Superheroes, and I was in elementary school, so it wasn't quite, it's like, I, um, but, but yeah, that must, that that must have been an incredible time to be, like, a, say, a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old reader, um, you know, and just, just kind of you know, having never seen a lot of this stuff before and then just being able to be kind
0: of drowned in this great material. Drowned is a good word for it. Um, In 1983, I was a senior in high school, and I went to, uh, we lived in San Jose, California at the time, I went to a shop at a mall called the Prune Yard, an upscale mall in the San Jose area. And um, this comic shop on the second level of this really nice outdoor mall sold um, mainstream books, but sold a tremendous number of uh, alternative titles um, from all these publishers who I barely knew about. Um, And the level of quality and diversity that I found in that store was astonishing. Like, I felt like I was in heaven every week when I went there because I had no idea that all this amazing material was out there. And um, it was like drowning in, in great comics. Um, you know, I had my crappy teenage job, as we all did at those ages, and I spent all my money on these comics just because I wanted to drink from that fire hose. Um, it was now, a,
1: what, what what was the name of that store again?
0: It was called, oh, I can't remember. Um, they they subsequently went out of business, I think, during the Ninja Turtles bust. Yeah. Um. Oh, I can't remember the name of the store, unfortunately.
1: Because that San Jose, there's some there is something in the water there. Like San Jose gave birth to so many great comics retail entrepreneurs. It's um you know, that's where Bud Plant is from and Bud is one of the maybe three or four people who just had just has this tremendous influence. Influence on the shape of the comics business and in addition kind of knew everybody and it, it is it's still around you can still buy from his company right. um, and uh, Dick Swan and I mean there's there's a whole list of these guys who went on to um, it, they were the partners in comics and comics the Bay Area chain and um, they, um, they were among the partners uh, either initially or later on and a lot of them started their own stores later on, and there's just something about the Bay Area. Um, some of it, some of it has to do, I think, with the the um, the growth of the undergrounds and the mm-hmm. fact that the undergrounds were um, there, there was you know there was this comics culture that developed out of the counterculture, but that was related, and I think kind of helped to. I mean, there's this interesting cross pollination there, but yeah, there's just something about San Jose where you could you could be you were in a town where you had like three comic shops at a time when 99% of the country had like um you know zero or one and uh yeah it's 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 uh, so i i envy you a little bit having been if you were shopping in the store in san jose and, at that time
0: yeah that was it was yeah. in, it, it was such a exciting time to get into comics and then when I started college, I got out of, the, out of comics for a while, but they still ended up being kind of this safety valve for me in a lot of ways. So, um, and I like to feel like the medium grew up with me because that's the thing with the increased distribution and the more titles being published it would allow more mature titles to come out. And for someone who was really paying attention to the great material that was out there, there was always something else that you could discover. I mean, yep. that's when I discovered like American Splendor, which is like perfect for a college age kid. Oh, yeah. Um, well, now that I live in... I grew up in Iowa, but I live in Ohio
1: now. And I, there's a great uh, independent uh, comic show here in Columbus called Space. It's the mm-hmm. Small Press and Alternative Comics Expo every spring. And Joyce Bradner, who's... I'm sure you know, but maybe people listening don't know, is um, was Harvey Pekar's wife. And she was one of the guests at the show a couple years ago. And she was, like, selling all these all these original American splendor type, uh, issues. And like, I swear for me, it was like, you know, it was like one of the Beatles was there, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. well, and it was just so funny just kind of chatting with her. It's like, Oh, you know, she's cause of course I knew her from her character in the comics, you know, and mm-hmm. she co-wrote some of the comics, but, um, but yeah, American splendor. Um, I, I'm trying to remember, you know, I started reading that when dark horse was published in the nineties and, the first American Splendor story I ever read was, I think it was in the Dark Horse Presents, was it Dark Horse Presents number 100? It was like, you know, and it was this anthology of a bunch of kind of uh, new stories, but that was kind of, that that represented a lot of the best stuff that Dark Horse had done. And um, and I think there was a concrete story by Paul Chadwick in that same issue. And then there was a uh, an American Splendor story with Joe Sacco drawing. Uh, and from there, I just picked up everything I could, everything I could find of Har- Harvey P. Cars, and then I, you know, I found the um, the stuff he did with R. Crumb, um, which I've now determined is like some of the only R. Crumb stuff I really like. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, with all due respect to all the people who really admire his material, I just don't. I have failed to connect with him. On, on, but I found that when Harvey P. Cars writing him. I can really enjoy his draftsmanship so much more than uh, so much of the stuff that he writes himself. But, but yeah, that was, that was, if you would have been reading it when it was in the larger, the more magazine size, the pre-Dark Horse stuff. Yeah. It was in the 80s,
0: right? yeah, yeah, I picked up uh, a magazine size issue. So, yeah, my story about American Splendor is, um, I picked up American Splendor number 10 at a kind of independent bookstore in Portland. I went to school in college in Portland. Um, in 1985. And that issue has a cover and interior story by Val Merrick. Uh, Merrick drew um, comics uh, at Marvel. uh, Many of his books were written by Steve Gerber, who's one of my favorite comics writers. And they worked together on Man-Thing, among other titles. And um, so, you know, I immediately responded to the Merrick cover. But on the cover, it has Joyce staring at Harvey as he's washing dishes, and he's saying to himself, poor dishwashing has always been my Achilles heel. If I could upgrade my dishwashing skills, I could really disarm my, my enemies. And I read that, and I'm like, this is so perfect for me because it's like written in this mighty Marvel manner but completely subverts the whole thing. And yeah. um, it, it was like magical for me, almost transformative for me. Oh yeah. Uh, you know,
1: and it's funny. I think when I think of um, when I think of the eighties and the key stuff, the, the, the important stuff that came out then, and actually, I don't know when. I'd have to go look and see when American Splendor started, but I think of that as a. a I think of that as being very much an eighties book, um, you know, and of course that continued after the eighties. But um, um, for some reason it's one of those ones that's not among the bullet points a lot of times you know when you mm-hmm. say okay what was you know this kind of expansion and this kind of enriching of, of the comics culture in the 80s you know it's it's all about love and rockets and it's all about some of the some of the mainstream stuff that edged toward being more sophisticated uh, like some of the Alan Moore stuff and um, and um, but it's it's you know now that now that I think about it it's like American splendor is not. Is not one I see in that conversation, and maybe it should be because, um, yeah, it's like that. It's uh, I have such a fondness for that material, and I think, and I'd be curious. I'd be curious how influential American Splendor has been for other cartoonists. I don't. I don't know the answer.
2: Yeah,
1: but I would think that I would. There must have been a lot of autobiographical cartoonists who, in their formative years, read that and it had an influence on them, I would guess.
0: Either first generation or second generation, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, even if they didn't read it directly, they had to read comics that influenced it, um, that made them want to do this kind of work. Um, And he really set the pace for it. But his stories were different from other people's stories, too. There was just an element of truthfulness about them, that was also non-exploitative. Maybe it's because his life was, you know, conventionally a little boring, that made yeah. him more interesting. Um, because I think what I responded to originally in the book, aside from the the juxtaposition of Valmerick during these very kind of ordinary stories, um, was just the fact that he was just a VA clerk, you know, tracking down medical records. Yep. Yeah. And you know, he wasn't young like I was at the time, he wasn't working some glamour job, he was just an average Joe. Um, yeah. And, and I thought that was like, I, I, I now that I think about it, I think that's really like an under, it's an area of the world that we just don't see that much in comics. Well, and some of his language too, like, you know, his use of like the term bread for money and yeah.
1: his fondness for jazz and his eccentricity, you know, it's like, I think it's, you know, so much of the appeal of this was that he's like an average guy, but he's really not an average guy. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, I mean, if you worked with him at the VA, you would, I suspect he was that wildly eccentric guy, you know, who, depending on your personality, you just gravitated toward because he was just, you know, grumpy and eccentric But he's, you know, he's, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, just, just this conversation makes me want to go out and see what's been read. Like, I wonder what, if any comics academic has done a deep dive on American Splendor, because it's, um, it's, it seems like there's just a lot of fodder there. And there's a lot of, there's an interesting, because, you know, so much, there, there's, there are cartoonists from the undergrounds, you know, of course, Crumb and others, um, who, you know, who, just the, the, it's interesting, like, kind of the, 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 the artist, because he was not a writer artist, you know, how, you know, and how different those, his stories feel very, you know, depending on who the artist is. And then you yeah. have someone like Saka showing up later um, and doing just so much of his stuff that I liked, but. But yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. I took us on a uh, American Splendor tangent there.
0: So. But, but, that's okay. I mean, this is a podcast, not a formal yeah. interview. After all, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Uh, no, that you got me thinking about that too. I want to. You got me thinking. I want to dig back into this. I wonder if I could get Joyce on my show and talk about it some more.
1: I, I can safely say, and I don't know. I've not. I, I um, And of course, my only encounters with her was were, were, was at a fan at this one show. But my sense was. She's very accessible, so yeah, I bet, I'd, and I would uh, be first in line to listen to that if, if you
0: had her on. Wow, I, I, I think I'll have to do that. Uh, yeah, thanks for, yeah, you got me excited thinking about the, these comics. They're some of my all-time favorites, and yeah. I don't pull them out nearly enough. Um, so I did two episodes on the Ninja Turtles and their um, impact on the industry, the third one kind of in, in the pipeline, talking about the infamous story of Tundra comics, which is one of the great underreported comics stories. Um, I'm curious what your take is on the black-and-white boom of the late 1980s triggered by the Ninja Turtles. So, no,
1: so, so, you, said, so you have an episode about Tundra that just hasn't run yet?
0: Uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing it, because it's a, a complicated, interesting story. I talk about it a lot in the 1990s book, though.
1: Okay, because, and and I'm sure you've seen this writing about it, like that Comics Journal interview with Kevin Eastman, where they talk a lot about Tundra, when I read that, I thought, this is like a, this is a book, this is a movie, this is like, this is like some sort of, this is one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of when a desire to do creative good, combined with a ton of money, goes horribly awry. You know, and it's... Um, you know, in, in the case of Tundra. Um, but, yeah, just going back to, like, the, bla- the black and white boom, it's... It's like... I mean, you see this over and over again. It happens in comics, and it happens outside of comics. Um, so, the, you know, the, so, so Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird do the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This comic that looks kind of... In this first issue was... Kind of, I don't want to say crudely drawn, but it was you know it was not it was it was uh, an amateur production at that you know you,
0: and you didn't call it crudely drawn it was two okay, young guys it. it's fencing What's quality so funny. some people have a fondness for that the the turtles material and I just don't and it's
1: like so part of me thanks God do I just not am I just not seeing something here because I just don't I think even the so called best of that was not very good. Um, and with all, with with due respect to all that that Kevin Eastman did for comics and all that, um, you know, it's it, I just don't like that. That uh, even when I was maybe more even at the kind of the age where I would be into that kind of thing, I just wasn't into it. But so, but this comic comes out, and with a, a small print run, and they're able to build an audience for it. Um, they sent out copies to shops all over the country. They they were able to get this core audience in the kind of northeastern U.S. by um, having a couple shops that liked it, and the kind of the cultural context of that first issue is that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has elements of a Daredevil parody, you know, where it's like it's um, it's it's the Frank Miller era Daredevil, uh, and it's just this absurd, you know, combination of adjectives with these, you know, and then these ninjas and, you know, this stuff that's kind of straight out of, um, and this kind of serious narration that's, um, I mean, it it was not, that comic was not playing it straight. It was, there was a parody element to it from the start. And, um, so that comic builds its audience as subsequent issues come out and as the creators get better at making comics and, They've really hit something here, you know, where it's like they have characters that have a real appeal. But then the thing is, though, beyond the quality of the comic, because of the small press run of that first issue, there's this market factor that that kicks in, which is that, okay, we have a popular comic here. Or the whole comics industry is like, this comic is popular, and almost nobody has number one this black-and-white small press-run comic. And so so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one, is worth a ton of money. It's worth what seems insane amounts of money for a comic that is not, you know, from the 1930s.
0: Well, that's uh, true. From, it was truly, it was a cl- clear supply-and-demand thing. Yeah. It was so, scarce, okay. and no one had it.
1: Yeah, and then the market, okay, so what, what does, so if you're a publisher of comics or a collector or retailer, okay, what's the right lesson and what's the wrong lesson to learn from this? The right lesson is that at times when there's the one in a thousand independent phenomenon like this that hits, if you happen to have a few extra issues that you bought a number one, um, you're going to, you're, you can sell those for a significant markup on what you paid for them. The bad lesson to learn is that is to think that any black and white independent comic um is going to has a similar phenomenon and also to just not grasp supply and demand. It's you know, if if a new black and white comic comes out in the mid eighties and the press run is, is tens of thousands instead of like a thousand, the chances of it being worth a ton of money are nil. You know, and it's like it's it just seems like and I think at some level the retailers and the distributors knew this and the publishers knew this. They knew that they were they were sending a crappy material because most of it was terrible out into a market where they were kind of just treating customers like suckers. You know, just kind of saying, okay, we printed some ridiculously high number of this low-quality thing that costs very little to print because it's black and white because it's really low-quality paper. And because of this one example of turtles number one, you're going to buy a hundred copies of it, and you're a fool. Yeah,
0: you know, tell this, the tell the story yeah. of Miami Mice, which you mentioned in the book. Yep, well, I think
1: Miami Mice, and that was a story that Jim Hanley told me. And of course, Jim Hanley, Jim Hanley was incredible in terms of making clear the mindset in that period, and and then into the 90s when there was this other huge bust. And he tells the story of, you know, someone trying to corner the market on Miami Mice number one, you know, trying to get, because the whole thing was you wanted to control the supply. And if you owned 90% of the copies, and, and it's just like, it's like there's an economics professor out there just kind of, you know, you know, throwing their notes away and retiring from, the profession because it's so ridiculous, uh-huh. you know. And I guess the thing, well but you know—I guess the only yeah. thing is to, I guess, kind of having suckers and treating the public like they don't like treating the public poorly is not, you know, it, this doesn't happen just in comics, of course. And this idea of using a one in a thousand example, like Turtles number one, and Trying to get other people to make poor financial decisions based on that example that was an outlier. That's not. That's not even really surprising that that happened. What's unfortunate is that so many people were caught up in it, um, and that when rationally they must have known this is just not. This is just not. This is not going to work. And then when it, when it all unraveled, of course. I mean, of course, it all unraveled. You know, it. It. And what happened was. Some distributors and some retailers, um, just weren't smart and they were left with thousands and thousands of unsold comics that there was no market for anymore. Because when the market loses confidence that this stuff's going to be worth anything, and that material is so low quality that when you take away that idea of making money from it, there's no reason for anyone to want it, you're, you're done. And the retailers that survived that were the ones that, only ordered, they ordered approximately how many they had customers for, and maybe a tiny bit left over for back issues. Those retailers that thought they were just geniuses and could order 20 times the demand and then save the rest so that they could retire at age 30, those are the ones who were out of the business.
0: Yeah, it's that short-term rush to make crazy amounts of money that you you, you dream of, you know, get-rich-quick schemes, which almost never work out. I mean, how many boxes of cold-blooded chameleon commandos are still sitting around in someone's basement somewhere or the back of some oh, store? Yeah. I mean, it's just hilarious to me.
1: And you see just a repeat of that, that kind of destructive thinking over and over again in comics. And it's just—it's this tension throughout the history of, of, of comics as a, you know, this, this whole kind of issue of collectors versus readers. And why are you buying a comic? And that so many people who are buying comics are indifferent to the actual content of the comics. And they're just, they're, I don't don't think they're doing it to make money because I think a lot of people are just kind of hoarding and, you know, the idea of selling is maybe not even foremost on their mind. But it's, yeah, it's, um, if only that black and white era had led to a bunch of really good comics. And there were some comics in that black and white era. Like, I mean, I, I talked to, um, Steve Moncus, um, who did Fish Police, and that was, you know, that was kind of, that was that's often associated with the black and white bus and, and was very much caught up in the boom and the bust, but you can go back and read that, and think, this is not terrible. You know, what's this doing in this, you know, batch of, right. as opposed to so many of the others that you can still get in quarter bins um, that are just... Unreadable. They're so awful.
0: Well, Dark Horse Comics started around the same time, also. Um, and of course, they ended up being a quality publisher.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm trying to remember, wasn't one of their early characters an anthropomorphized kind of, you know, I don't know if it was a parody of, of Turtles or if it was just, you know, but it, it's like, yeah, you can tell when you look at their very earliest stuff, the era that they're coming up, they're coming, you know, in which they're. In which they're coming out.
0: Um, Boris the uh, Bear.
1: Yep, yep, exactly. Would that would that have been the
0: mid eighties? Would that have been yeah, eighty six or eighty seven? I believe. And I have no idea. I've never read Boris the Bear, but um,
1: it would have been interesting to. And I was not of an age where I would have been reading that at the time. Of course, Um, I wonder at the time. I wonder at what point people became aware of Dark Horse as this. Publisher that was writing stuff that was worthy of really taking notice of.
0: Um, Boris the Bear was August 86, and the cover has him Boris the Bear Slaughters the Teenage Radioactive Black Belt Mutant Ninja Critters. So they were clearly going after that same market. Although it was a parody. Um, The stories are not bad. It's a decent comic. Um, I think the artist is James Dean Smith, and um, it's reasonable quality. Um, Dark Horse kind of differentiate themselves pretty quickly on they had a big uh, at least a uh, critical hit with concrete which yeah. really helped to establish their line as being a, a place where people could find quality books and um you know obviously a big part of their success was going into hollywood and and when the mask was a big hit kind of solidified them but um they had they they were a real business i guess is what what yeah, the bottom yeah. line is as opposed to some schlocky fly-by-night company
1: Yeah, and they, I think the first Dark Horse comic I read was their, you know, was Dark Empire, was the Star Wars stuff.
0: Oh yeah, that was big for them too.
1: Oh yeah, and then after that I read Concrete, um, but yeah, that, um, but it is, a a lot of times there is also this interesting history of enduring things kind of rising out of the busts, Mm because there have been various busts in the history of the comics business, and It's like if you get into the business right before the bust, you're probably you're probably it's just not going to work. But if you happen to get in during or you know or um, it's um, there there is and you look at retailers, a lot of retailers um, they started after you know amid or right after the '90s bust, and um, it you know and that turned out to be turned out to be very good timing.
0: Yeah, we got a little away from, from retailers. Um, so I, you also chronicle some of the reaction of the retailers to the boom and bust of the 1990s as well, um, which is something, I, of course, we write about a lot in the 90s book. Um, what were some of the takes that you got on the death of Superman and its impact on their businesses?
1: Well, the, the death of Superman was an example of not learning anything from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, really. Um, so um so, okay so the death of superman superman number 75 that is this gigantic event this hit you know where it sells out instantaneously seemingly uh, when it comes out um publishers way un- or i mean retailers underordered it even though they felt like they were overordering it so of course, because, you know, we, retailers then learn all the wrong lessons from this. Um, the lesson should be you can only kill Superman once and have it be a big event. You know, it it you can't just have a character death or a character resurrection every few months and have it be like the, 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 the death of Superman. Um, and you cheapen that initial event when you're following it up with a regular succession of stunts to, to 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 boost sales. But this didn't immediately become clear. All that retailers knew was that they had this sensation on their hands. And it also brought in all of these non-comics fans who just wanted to buy 100 copies of something so that they could, you know, sell them for a profit. And the comic that made clear what, you know, kind of what had gone wrong or the disconnect was Adventures of Superman number 500. That was the comic where Superman comes back. You know, and, you know, it's I bought, I, I I, did not buy Superman number 75 because by the time I got to my store it was sold out. But, of course, I got Adventures of Superman number 500 because every store had hundreds of copies of that. You know, they weren't going to be. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Jerry Ordway and uh, I'm trying to remember who drew it. Um, I think it was Tom Grummet. Um But um, it's the story of kind of Superman fighting his way back through the afterlife to come back. Um, and retailers having learned the wrong lessons from Superman number 75, which was, you know, not that long before then. Superman was coming back soon after he died.
0: Um, they ordered and an and ad everybody ad knew ad. it. What that? Everyone knew he would be coming back.
1: Well, but I think part of... I think people knew he was coming back, but I think part of the sales push was this idea that maybe he wasn't. I mean, it was this kind of, like, willful disbelief, you know, or this kind of, like, you know, I don't know, what if this is permanent? What if... I mean, of course he was coming back. But <laughs> yeah. it's like, but the thing is, though, the significance of the death is diminished substantially if he comes back, mm-hmm. you know, less than a year later or whatever it was. And so this they retailers overordered Adventures of Superman number 500. And this was around the time that other things were happening to harm the business of, of comic shops. Um, you had I- Image Comics um, had sprouted up, and they were um, – they were selling these new titles that sold well, but they couldn't keep them on schedule. They would they would say a certain title was coming out a certain month, and then it wouldn't show up until four months later, um, or something like that. Um, they Image Comics was a real mess in terms as a business. Um, they could sell the as a business as it related to comic shops. I mean, I, I, I suspect they were financially successful themselves. Um, but there was this combination of factors where those people who wanted to buy hundreds of copies of Superman number 75, it kind of dawned on them that, you know, that since they missed out on that first one and then they made up for it by buying a whole bunch of other things, whether it be Wildcats number one from Image or um, I think it finally dawned on some of those collectors that they, they're, they were not going to get rich and that, there was just this. This was not. This was not a functional money making strategy. Uh, and when you saw those speculators leave the market, you're left with that kind of core of readers. Um, and the market had been boosted by these kind of empty calories of people who are not real, real readers. Um, and it was a, it was a shock. It was an absolute shock to the market because the speculators the collectors were this huge share. Um, And that is... And you had retailers that overextended themselves. They had built up by these empty calories. They had opened up new locations. You had stores with seven stores in a metro area, a seven-store chain up instead of just the one original. You had kind of reckless spending Uh um, because, you know, it was like, oh, this is the new normal. We're going to sell... You know, crazy numbers of all kinds of things, even if those things aren't very good. And if there's one thing the history of the comics business should should communicate is that the comeuppance is always right around the corner. Um, when things seem really, really good, that's when you invest. That's when you make sure that, you know, you've fixed the plumbing and you've, you know, and you don't overexpand. Uh, and you need to be ready for the next bust because the next bust is right around the corner. I mean that's true in any business, but in comics, the booms and the busts seem to be the boom-bust cycle. Seem to be shorter, and the uh, the especially in that time, the heights of the booms and the depths of the busts were just particularly difficult.
0: Yeah, it seems to happen at least once every decade. Um, yeah, I was talking last week with my colleagues who wrote uh, various different volumes of the series, and each one talks about how. Uh, yeah in the 1950s we saw boom and bust in the 60s it's like repeating over and over again and um, I hadn't thought about it at all because I haven't done much history of that but you also talked about um, the year that uh, Convergence and Secret Wars came out and caused uh, uh, another recession in the comics industry
1: yeah and it's um, today the comic shops are dependent on Marvel and DC, the two biggest publishers, a lot of shops are. They're Not all shops are, but a lot of shops are dependent on those two. So much that if those two are making poor decisions that alienate readers, um, if they're both making poor decisions that alienate readers at the same time, it's it can be just devastating. Um, and Convergence, um, which was... Um, I'm trying to remember. Was this was this 2015 that Convergence happened? Um, whenever that was,
0: either 14 or 15. Was, yeah, it was just a it was just a disaster. It
1: Convergence the story itself was was not very compelling. Um, when I was looking at some of the Convergence tie-ins at the time, there was one that was drawn by George Perez, and I was like, "Well, heck, I'm I'm all in for that," you know. So I think I bought the first. I think he drew two issues of a three issue. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, but you know what? Okay, I'm I'm conflating convergence and Flashpoint. I'm getting my events mixed up. The George Paris tie-in was Flashpoint. My goodness, how in the world do, <laughs> how the world
0: do we keep all this stuff straight? That's another so, problem. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but I bought a lot of those tie-ins. I actually liked some of those tie-ins, like the um the convergence tie-in that was the uh, the Marvel Family story. You know, with uh, uh, Evan Shanner drew it.
0: I was just that gonna was say crazy. it was amazing, wasn't it?
1: Oh yeah, and there were a couple others. There was the uh, the Seven Soldiers of Victory story. Um, I don't remember who the artist was, but I think it was Paul Levitz that drew it, that wrote it. I really liked that. Like there were there were a bunch of those convergence tie ins that I thought were actually pretty good. But the core convergence title was, um, at times incomprehensible and was not very well done and. DC had basically put its most of its line on hold while the Convergence titles were, were coming out. And those titles did not have... You know, it's like the audience was not... It was aimed at kind of a hardcore audience. Um, it was not... And it just... It was it was really, really rough for, for shops to deal with that. They didn't know how to order these titles because they, they had no idea. Um, I don't think it was marketed very well. And... At the same time that Convergence was happening, Marvel was... And I believe Convergence started before Secret Wars. Um, slightly. But it was all... They kind of overlapped. And Marvel's Secret Wars was... Compared to Convergence, like if you just sit down and read the main Convergence story and you read the main Secret War story, to even attempt to compare them almost seems unfair. Because... Secret Wars strikes me as kind of a real story mm-hmm. um, and not this kind of collection of stuff that a story needs to accomplish to fit some corporate publishing initiative. Although I realize that kind of is what Secret Wars was too. There's like a real story. It's the same artist all the way through. It's like, there's some really compelling elements of the story, but the thing that they both had in common aside from coming out at the same time was that Secret Wars was this key comic for Marvel in not in rebooting it was kind of a soft reboot of their of their universe and there were new titles coming out after secret wars but secret wars was delayed partly because it was all going to be one artist and it was just running behind so marvel was releasing titles for the new universe kind of created by secret wars before secret wars was over and for retailers it's just like it just drives them nuts because it's like they get in a new number one, that's a post Secret Wars title, and that new number one might be really good, but try selling it. Um, you know when, you know the whole appeal of that new number one is it's this is your this is the world after the Secret War story. So it's like, and it's you know, it all sounds like to someone outside of comics to explain this the way I am. It, it all sounds. I realize it all sounds ridiculous. Right. From a business perspective, though, there was a real mistake that was made here. Um, and I don't know what the, the solution is, maybe just to have longer lead time so that you don't have these delays because Marvel also had delays with their Civil War series. Um, of, you know, or, uh, God, it must have been you know a few years or earlier. Um, and it's like, this is a real problem. Like, you need... Pub- retailers depend on being able to trust the publishing schedule for their own planning purposes. And it's like when the big publishers, because the big publishers should be the most competent in terms of putting stuff out on time, in terms of communicating what they're going to put out, in terms of then delivering on those communications and being accurate in those communications. And when one or both of the publishers are just kind of not doing that very well, you're just in big trouble if you're a retailer. So this this was an example of... Re, of the major publishers just shooting their their customers in the foot, you know, because the 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 customers of the major publishers in many ways are the retailers, um, and it's what's impressive to me is how quickly I mean, shops rebounded from this pretty quickly. Yeah, this was a scary few months, but it it, all, it almost said to me that maybe the major publishers just aren't as important as they used to be. Um, and maybe the shops have kind of learned to protect themselves from the foibles of the major publishers.
0: Well, you talk about that, too. Uh, the, the public It's kind of in two ways that the publishers aren't as important as they used to be. One is the growth of uh, Raina Telgemeier and um, Dave Palinke and all those creators who really appeal to a completely different audience than the comic shop audience. And the other is the growth of all these indies, um, you know, stuff like Paper Girls and Saga, that kind of capture people's imaginations in a way that, the superhero uh, superhero properties don't which is so ironic because I mean in the era when um, Endgame makes a billion two hundred million dollars or something um, comic sales haven't moved a bit which is just the worst indictment of this industry I think that you can imagine yeah and one of the things I get asked a
1: lot is to comment on the Marvel movies and how those relate to the comics um, and it's really tough because, so in a lot of ways, the Marvel movies are just as a pure storytelling exercise are better than the Marvel comics. Um, now the, Mar- the, the movies m- borrow lots of story elements from the comics. So it's not like, you know, it's not they're in their, you know, and they're, very similar interpretations of the characters. So it's not like we're talking about two separate things here. They're two very interrelated things. But I imagine the, if, you, if you did the Marvel movies, just kind of straight comics adaptations, or if the, if the comic series were more like the Marvel movies, they would be somewhat successful, but there's a real ceiling on how successful a, a successful mainstream comic can be. Mm-hmm. In terms of sales, unless you're using gimmicks to kind of artificially goose the sales, so um, I think the Marvel movies are, are really they're really well done. Um, they're the, I, I mean I really have liked the Captain America movies. I, I yeah I think that the the two Infinity War movies were, um, yeah a bit. You know, the, the, at that point the, you can kind of feel the accumulated weight of all the continuity. And it feels a bit overstuffed and it's not necessarily very good as a movie. But it is highly entertaining and very rewarding. It kind of replicates the feeling of an event comic, um, you know, when you're really familiar with the universe it's happening in. But it, it's like those comics, those, those movies though, they lead to a slight uptick in interest in the comics. Um, but if, if even, you know, Three percent of the people who re- watched those movies became regular comics readers. That w- that were not regular comics readers already, it would be transformative for those companies in terms of their publishing lines. And it's just, it's not. There, there. You should, comic shops will see big increases. Like after the Black Panther movie, they saw huge increases in sales of Black Panther comics. Those, some of those, the. Um, the the Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, Black Panther title was a huge hit initially. Um, But those examples are kind of notable because of their, their exceptions. You know, it isn't like the Avengers comic when Avengers has a new number one. I mean, it'll sell the new number one. will sell now. It doesn't help if they do a new number one, like every other year or every year almost. But, um, but yeah, there's a real disconnect there. And, it makes it seem as though the publishing lines are just this kind of idea factory for the movies. And it's just this kind of keeping the copyrights alive and, um, and or maintaining the, you know, the, the, the copyrights. And it's, um, it's, yeah, it's kind of as a comics fan, it's just kind of, it's, there's an element of that that's disappointing. Um, because I, the comics at their best, like I think of like the Walt Simonson Thor that I read in the 1980s, and of course, the Thor movies borrow some from that. Um, you can see specific kind of callbacks and references to, to to the Simons and stuff. But it's like, man, if I'm going to watch a Thor movie, I just like to watch a. It's almost like I want to watch the Thor TV show that is the Simons and Robin. yeah. I mean, if you're going yeah. to make moving pictures about these stories, um, but yeah, I feel like um, I feel like a lot gets lost in translation when they try to take. Um, and I feel. I guess I feel. And I'm sure there are like a lot of fans who are kind of more hardcore fans than I am who feel it's almost, it almost, you know, comics used to be this thing that was not really a mainstream thing. And some of these characters, I mean, the idea that even Iron Man is a character everyone knows now. I mean, Iron Man was like a second tier character. I, right. uh, yeah, I had a subscription to Iron Man in the 1980s and that was not, a, you know, not a top selling character at all and not kind of a core character for marvel and um yeah we're just in this weird place right now where so many elements or so many elements so many characters and so many concepts from comics are known by everybody but it hasn't helped the comics much at all
0: i think that's a good segue into the last set of questions i had which are around your kind of taxonomy of different comic shops and how they stay alive these days i thought it was interesting how you broke them down into different categories
1: yeah, and, it, and that was one thing, like, in writing this that I struggled with. Okay, so in the process of writing this, I went to a whole bunch of comic shops. And I realized in the main text of the book that there was no way to get those comic shops all in there. There was just, You just couldn't. It was like, you know, we're talking about... 50 plus shops or 60 plus shops or, you know, it's like, it would just be this mess if I was trying the um, so that's one of the reasons that I did this whole, this whole second section in the book that is just short, short profiles of individual stores because I wanted the voices of those store owners to be there. And I also, I also, you know, it's like the sum total of like when I'm the, the main narrative in the story in the book is, um, based on all the interviews with all those shop owners, even if the shop owners aren't named in those, you know, in, in kind of going through some of the larger points. Um, and one way to kind of make it so that if you're writing profiles of a bunch of stores, that it isn't just, there has to be some sort of way to organize it or else it's just a mess. Um, and the way that I chose to organize it was that there's, there are categories of stores that become clear if you go to a bunch of them. Um, the one category that I had a hard time figuring out what to call, and I ended up calling them all of the above stores, uh, and that is Laughing Ogre here in Columbus is one of them. Um, and there's a bunch of others. A lot of the best stores are all of the above stores. And and what I mean by an all of the above store is it's a store that has a really good kids section. It's a store that has a full or close to full selection of mainstream comics. And also... Um, Non-mainstream comics. It's a store where kind of a, a lot of independent material, a lot of books, um, a lot of. Um, it's essentially appealing to a really broad audience. Um, it's a place where a a a kind of a a, um, a hoity-toity comics fan who's you know who who only you know is only reading independent material and just kind of looks down their nose at anything mainstream. They like that store. Somebody who mm-hmm. only buys mainstream stuff likes that store. Um, a five-year-old who really likes, you know, reading Bone and reading the Disney comics or, or, um, they like that store. Um, so that's, and there's a bunch of stores like that and there's some of the best stores. So that's one category. The other category that I find really interesting is I call them comics galleries. Um, I'm sure there's a better name for it. Um, but those are stores that are these kind of boutique-like stores. Um, they gravitate a little bit more toward independent material. They, they will almost all sell mainstream comics, but it's not, it's not kind of... If you're someone who's only into mainstream comics, you're not shopping at that store. Um, they put a lot more thought into the design of the store, into lighting and into fixtures and into uh, the way things are displayed. And again, some of the best stores in the country are stores like that. But you can't do that kind of store everywhere. You're more likely to see it in major metro areas. Um, And then I can kind of, you know, and then there are other um, categories. Um, One of the categories is um, stores that are these hybrids. You know, a a really common hybrid store is a comics and uh, games store with role-playing games and board games. You see those popping up increasingly. Um, You see comics and coffee together together. Um
0: yeah, I think comics and coffee is just a genius idea.
1: Oh my god, yeah. And one of the best stores in the country is Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. It's like I went there, so I went there and I just like I just want to like live here. You know, I'm going <laughs> to sit over here on the coffee shop side. I sat there, drank some coffee, had a really good pastry, and they had all these like just kind of very kind of well-worn paperbacks of comics to look at just for free and I had the Showcase Presents Batlash you know the Sergio Aragonis um uh Western I believe it's Sergio Aragonis um, yep. uh, and um that he wrote and it's just like my goodness just why is this not in my town you know and if, um and um yeah it's like if you could Legend Comics and Coffee I mean that's a concept if I was gonna start a store and if there's one thing writing a book about comic shops tells me is I don't want to start a store. I mean, it's it's uh, the heartburn uh, and the ups and downs are, are tough. But if someone wants to start a store, one idea is to go to Legend Comics and Coffee, take a bunch of pictures, talk to the owners. Just, I mean, that's, I think, that what they're doing could be replicated in a lot of places, and it would, and there would be an audience for it.
0: I was actually in that store about two years ago. I had a friend in Omaha who, was, who got married, so a group of us went out there. And I, I was really impressed by the shop. Um, and really nice owners, too. They're just like just great people. Um, yeah. And I just think the idea of tying like a daily habit like coffee to weekly comics buying is just genius. Um, yeah. And it's two slightly different, two pretty different audiences, but a very different cash flow, too. I mean, a lot of this kind of comes down to what's the best way to keep your business above water. Yep, yep. And, you know, there's a reason yep. why Barnes & Nobles have Starbucks in them, because that's going to keep people coming in every day.
1: Yeah, yep. And a store like Legend Comics & Coffee, I mean, they are really built to survive... You know the Armageddon of the comics industry, if if it ever comes, because a store like that, they can just be in our, They can just sell um, kind of antiquarian comics. They can just uh, um, you know their their overhead would go way down if they weren't buying new stuff as much, and that comics side of the store could just be selling back issues and books, and that coffee side, I I, I don't, I don't remember if. They said anything about what the revenue split was between the two sides, but it's like th- that coffee side would sustain them, and, and you could still imagine a store that does a lot of what that store does, even if there's no, even if the kind of the comics industry kind of falls down around them.
0: Yeah, that's I, w- one thing I wonder how many stores are, are coffee and whatever. I wonder if you could take the taxonomy in the opposite way. You know, coffee and hair design, whatever it might be. Um, I, I think that there are stores like that and one of the big differences is
1: how well they do the coffee side. So it's like there are stores that say, Oh, we're coffee and whatever and but the coffee is kind of half assed, you know, it's like they don't it's not like the the test of whether or not a coffee shop slash other retailer works, I think, is that both sides are both sides need to be so good. That you would, you would independently shop. You, you would go to that coffee shop if it was just a coffee shop. You would go to that comic shop if it was just a comic shop, and if they were located a mile apart. And then if you put them together, you then have both of those audiences. You have, you know, you go to the get, you go to the coffee side, and then you pick up something on the comic side, or vice versa. Um, and yeah, the key to making the comics and coffee combination work or the coffee and anything combination work is that you, it's more than just selling coffee. I mean, you need to become an expert in that retail model and at legend in Omaha, they clearly are. Um, And I, I mean, I don't, I did not go into examples of those that are not good at that, but I mean, there are those that have tried kind of similar models and it just doesn't work as well because, and one of the reasons is you know one half of the that combination just doesn't isn't isn't uh,
0: really up to snuff. So, final question for you, Dan. I know you have family commitments today. Is um, you've been a business reporter for many years. On the whole, uh, how do you assess the health of the comic shop business as opposed to some of the other businesses that you write about?
1: Uh, I think I think comic shops are. Um, bound up in a larger retail story where physical retailers, life is getting more difficult for them with each passing year. We are becoming accustomed to, you look at like the prevalence of Amazon and it's just dominance of retail. Um, You look at, so when you start out by saying physical retail in general is under stress so then you kind of take out this subset of physical retail, which is comic shops. Comic shops are also under stress because they have new forms of competition from the fact that the top-selling comics these days are in book form and they're sold to kids, like Raina Telgemeier's stuff, like Dave Pilkey stuff. like, um, And that's a challenge. Um, the major publishers could just decide that they – this whole publishing comics and pamphlet form just doesn't work for them anymore um and then that dramatically changes the comic shop business so you've got this kind of almost layer cake of challenges the big retail challenge of all retailers and then some specific existential threats for comic shops so that's and that all sounds very bad like i'm but i don't think comic shops are i think the best comic shops that have a devoted audience that listen to their audience, that adapt to changing times, they'll be around. I think they'll be around for five more years. I think they. I think I could say most of them will be around for ten more years if they want to, if the owners are willing to kind of endure rapid change and destabilizing change. We are. Our economy is changing so fast and in such drastic ways. I think anyone who says they know what. Retail will look like more than ten years in the future is just kind of making stuff up. Um, so once you get beyond that kind of five to ten year time frame, I don't know. Um, but you know, if comic shops vanished, people would just open comic shops. You know, there's yeah. a demand; yeah. people want them. Yeah. The question yeah. is, how many shops can that support? How many shops can be supported by that? And. Obviously I have a real fondness for comic shops, so I want them to succeed. I I shop at comic shops, I support comic shops, but it's it's tough. It's a tough time to be a retailer, period.
0: I think that's a perfect place to end this. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate you giving up some time to chat about this.